welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. Maria Luisa Pineda is the co-founder and CEO of Envisagenics, which was founded in 2014 as a spin-out of Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. Given that there are over 30 million people in the United States who suffer from genetic disease or cancer, which can be caused by mutations affecting RNA splicing, Envisagenics aims to accelerate the development of innovative therapeutic solutions for RNA splicing variants with the help of its AI platform. Dr. Pineda has over a decade of experience as a biologist. She was awarded an endowment of $2 million at the Goizeta Foundation and an NIH fellowship with the Minority Access to Research Careers program during her undergraduate training. She then went on to obtain her PhD from the Watson School of Biological Sciences at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory as an Arnold and Mabel Beckman graduate student and a William Randolph Hearst Foundation Scholar. Maria, we'd love for you to walk us through your early experiences and what got you excited about science and how did you end up graduating and doing your work at CSHL? Yeah, of course. So background about me, um, Colombian, originally from Cali, moved to the States for undergrad, did my undergrad in biology at Bear University. I had a, a couple of fellowships and NIH awards as an undergrad and I ended up doing a couple summer programs so part of my NIH fellowship I had to do summer internships paid to do research and it was mandatory for us to present uh, conferences and and publish and things like that so after doing a couple of them one at UF and one at Stanford you know I realized I really wanted to do my PhD to continue doing research and apply to many schools I think part of my fellowship it was mandatory for us as a minority to apply to minimum of 10 schools so again I interviewed you know 10 schools and my top choice uh, was Cold Spring Harbor Lab so when I got accepted as a um, Cold Spring Harbor I realized you know I could do research again with a fellowship so it allowed me to choose a mentor do research in something in a science feel that I was interested in. And while I was doing that, I realized since I had moved to this country, I was able to get funding for my research and for university. So I didn't have any debt, but also my research was paid for since I was 16, all the way through PhD. So I was like, oh, this financing or business thing, it's it's not that bad. You know, I wonder what can you do with a PhD and training science? What else can you do with? And I started a couple of programs at Cold Spring Harbor. It's like, what can you do with a PhD? So I started inviting people that have PhDs that are not PIs or professors. What else are they doing? Some of them are be like attorneys or government or VCs or start a company. So all the ones that I've met kind of gave me a sense. And one of them that had just started his new fund invited me to like intern with them while I was finishing. And I really, really liked it. So I ended up going into VC after graduating from Cold Spring Harbor Lab with my PhD. So instead of a postdoc, I went into like VC for a year or so. 
Um, and that's when, you know, Martine and Adrian, Dr. Adrian Craner, my professor, called me and what they were working on was working for the children. So I kind of said, hey, why don't you guys show me the data? Let me know what you guys are, are thinking of commercializing and see if we can put something together and spin it out. That's great. And maybe we can backtrack a little bit. Could you talk about what the Craner Lab was doing around that time? So talk about maybe antisense oligonucleotides, how they work, the development of Spinraza for spinal muscular atrophy and so forth. Yeah, of course. This is one of my favorite parts is the reason I started Envisogenics in the first place. So when Martin called me, him and Adrian said that antisense oligos are small little pieces of RNA that get attached and fix errors. So the protein that it's kind of messed up could be produced. So children that couldn't move a single muscle after they're given this piece of RNA or like a Band-Aid are now able to walk, talk, smile. But more importantly for us as scientists, right? Like when you're being part of a development and something that important where the children are sending us Iron Man drawings that look like Adrian with a little mouse and glasses after they couldn't move their hands. That's when you're like, wow, this is exactly the type of difference I want to make, but not for one disease, but for many, many others. So RNA therapeutics got approved in 2016 and children with this devastating disorder that, you know, where their muscles cannot move again, ASOs, antisense oligos, a now FDA approved called Spinraza can now work and could help fix that error for those children. And that's why we decided to do a misogenic so we could do it again, but this time accelerate the process that took it t- took us decades, but use technology and cloud computing and all these novel tech to accelerate what we had done at the lab, not just for one disease, but for many others. That is extremely, extremely beautiful story. And I think that when we see the impact of work on someone's life, that just gives us the fuel and the energy that we need to continue this arduous path that I can imagine didn't come without yeah. an onset of challenges. <laughs> Definitely. Could you describe to us how your technology splice court works and how does it tie into the mission and the vision for Envisagenics? Of course, of course. Look, at Envisagenics, our mission is to leverage AI and machine learning technologies to discover RNA splicing targets for therapeutic development, basically to make drugs. And in order for us to do that, we've developed and designed a splice core, our platform, which is our main enabler. It actually uses RNA sequencing data, and then we actually map have a reference transcriptome. And what we do is that we've actually kind of like re-envisioned the human genome. And instead of looking at genes, we look at exons and how three exons could make up a certain protein. Proteins are what make our body function properly. So by re-envisioning the human genome in an exon-centric approach, it allows us to give us uh, a different view. And again, all of us have the same genes, but we all look different. So we always look at it at the splicing level, at the exon level, because that's what gives us all our biological diversity. That's splicing is why you guys look different than me. And we, from a fly, we all look the same. But 
at the end of the day, by having different isoforms, different variants, we all look different. So what SpliceCore does is take RNA sequences and depending on the modality of interest, like what type of drug we're interested in doing, we go find a target that is present in disease population and not in normal. So by doing that, then we can apply, you know, different machine learning algorithms, identify this target. And then based on this criteria, we try to find a very specific target, a prevalence, a functional importance. And then from there, develop a therapeutic around those targets. And we identify them in silico. It now takes us maybe six to eight months, something that used to take us years. We go to the lab, test it validate it, and then go into in vivo. So we now at Invisogenics could go from analyzing RNA-seq all the way to preclinical data with in vivo models in eight months or less. Yeah, the six to eight month timeline is is really incredible. Thanks. It only took us 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) I guess in that, like, can you talk more about the business model around Invisogenics that you're doing its part partnering model, right, and part in-house drug development. It would be great if you could describe that a bit more. Of course, yeah. So at Invisogenics, we have a hybrid business model, so we can leverage the SpliceCore platform in one vertical with external partnerships with our pharmaceutical companies. So we can together explore strategic indications, meaning things that have RNA splicing errors that can take advantage of our platform and our way of looking at the human genome. So our research collaboration agreements are structured in upfront payments, milestones, and royalties. And based on that, we jointly develop therapeutics together. The other vertical, as you, you just alluded to, it's to leverage our platform internally, where we are experts in antisense oligo because of our work with Spinrasa. So we want to make sure that we drive development up to a certain preclinical stage and then look options there. Right now we're early enough that we can partner it or license it or fund it into a new company. So it's kind of like having a chicken with the golden eggs, right? We have plenty of eggs that we could share, but we also have the chicken. So we want to keep some of the golden eggs for ourselves as well and some things that we're interested As you were spinning this out of of the Craner Lab, how did Cold Spring Harbor support you through this commercialization process? Cold Spring Harbor is very, very supported throughout this journey, especially the tech transfer office. If you are a scientist and you're interested, the first stop should be the tech transfer office when you're spinning out a company. At CSHL, professors, including Agent Craner, they all also liked SpliceCore platform. They all said, if you build it, we'll use it. We all need it. So, you know, just having that knowledge that if we had like a minimal viable product, even our own professors will use it. It was encouraging enough to go out to the market. Same thing with pharma. So we continuously have been collaborating with Cold Spring Harbor, but instead this time as a company, we have a lot of SBAR grants and continuously grow and advance our science together. And can you talk more about just for our listeners that might not be familiar, what are NIH SBR grants? What is non-dilutive funding? Why is it useful for early stage companies to go and apply for non-dilutive funding versus getting angel investments and, and a lot of venture money, for example? 
First of all, there's several classes that in New York City and in New York State, the Small Business Administration, the SBA, actually give for free sometimes. And sometimes they're like $50 or $75, which help you to understand everything about NIH grants and NSF and all the HHS grants. So HHS has several centers. Each center has a funding that you can apply for. There are two types of applications, the SBIR and the STTR. SBIRs indicate that the company will become the lead PI. And in the STTR, it indicates that the academic institution will remain the PI for research. But both of them are non-dilutive funding. So it just means cash revenue. They start from around 400,000 to up to two and a half million. And there are three deadlines around the years that you have to adhere to for submission. Once you receive the score from the grant application, from the reviewers, you get normally to get three. If you get scored and it's high enough, then you get awarded three months after notification of your score. From there, grants are just like any other cat, like just cash. So it gives you the flexibility to innovate science. And in this case, you don't have to give any equity or anything from your company. You just use the money to do research. Simple. In case of dilutive funding, meaning having going to investors and getting an angel round or an A round, you have to give equity for that earned cash. So then you have investors and you have to report to them what you do. You also have to report to NIH, but it's more for innovation rather than equity. And I think all qualified startups should apply for non-delivered funding to take advantage of the federal funds that are available so you can minimize the risk of the company. So if you have an idea, go apply to a grant, get it, try to de-risk it as much as you can, have some data, and from there, go to investors. You're going to have a better pitch, have more leverage, and get to the next inflection point. So you also got some pre-seed investment from Breakout Labs. Could you talk about what Breakout Labs is? And correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think they're they're around anymore. You're right. I think they just finished maybe last month, Breakout Labs. It was a Peter Thiel foundation organization led by three women, Hemi, Lindy, and Julia. They were all extremely impressive and they really were trying to do like pre-seed grants or investment into really deep tech. That's how I call it. So all my classmates are all scientists, deep tech, difficult to fund companies, but really out there. And, you know, I found them through that our network. After first investment, everybody starts getting to know each other. They they make warming shows and you get involved in that. And, and I think Breakout Labs was such a great opportunity to be part of an amazing deep tech group of portfolio companies and open up a network that in Silicon Valley that New York scientists don't have. So it kind of opened up a lot of intros, avenues. And from there, I got our our seed round from an intro from Breakout Labs. And yeah, they had unboxing every year. We had great classmates. And it was, everybody's done really, really well. Cortexime, it's one of the companies that's done really, really well since CNS. Motor Meadow and, and Nina Zabibon both are our, in New York or New York City or tri-state area now. So it's it was a, a great start. And now they're Breakout Ventures. 
yeah, it seems like this was a great opportunity where you were able to build an entire network and, and learn and grow with a bunch of other entrepreneurs. Yeah. And then I think startup world, that once you're part of it, yeah, your network and your ecosystem is one of the most important parts. So you have to get the mentors, get the allies, get the investors and surround yourself with really good people that could help you, advise you, mentor you, partner with you to move forward and scale the company the best you can. That's great. And then Envisagenics is also a resident of J&J Labs, right, in New York City. Maybe you could talk about how J&J Labs has been supportive of you and the company's progress. Yeah, so J-Labs is an exceptional environment for a young company. It's an incubator lens, like instant credibility, right? Because it's from Johnson Johnson. Uh, it provides on-site employees with professional, secure, everything super immaculate. Pre-COVID, we're all right next to each other. So it's very collaborative. And I think a lot of startups need that to thrive. In addition, it actually provides a lot of network opportunities to learn from industry. So you, there's not a lot of options sometimes to kind of have a, in like biopharma industry experts right next to you. So J&J has done a great job of partnering with, with those startups and helping you network and introduce you to J&J folks and others, by the way, other industry partners. But you also get mentors. So my mentor at J&J was Dr. Paul Stoffels, the chief scientific officer. So that was a great, they call them J-Pauls to have, right? The, he's a vice chair and the CSO of J&J. And it's been great. He himself is, is an entrepreneur by heart, right? He started his own company doing HIV vaccine, which was sold to Jensen very successfully. So he's been there. He's done that. He's PhD and MD uh, for background. So having somebody like Paul to mentor somebody like me kind of gave me a lot of insight into industry and how to build a company as successful as he did. And that leads really, really nicely into the next question I have, which is through this process, you've managed quite impressively to establish partnerships with some really large pharmaceutical and biotech companies like J&J and Biogen. Could you talk about how you've gotten buy-in from some of these larger companies that tend to think about the world in a more traditional way and how you've sold this vision of applying you know, AI and machine learning to the problem of uh, drug discovery. Yeah, of course. Look, the, the most recent ones we've done has been J&J and Biogen, uh, which have been publicly announced. And it's been a work in progress for a really long time. I have to be honest, they're not quick deals. Those deals take an average 12 months. But as AI and machine learning market has expanding, and I think we're lucky to have developed and be part of these new industry that we kind of helped build, we were able to do science and apply our science, like all our platform and our science virtually, even do COVID. So I think a lot of pharma have to re-envision and reimagine what they're understanding and the value of what innovative AI-driven technologies could help them do and accelerate research and development. So typically, you know, it really takes some convincing to bridge this gap with biologists. But at least at Invisogenics, we can show them the value of the R&D efforts. And we were, we're here to partner to together develop drugs using our platform and accelerate to kind of enhance what they're doing together. 
So the scientific due diligence requires a lot of validations. So that's one of the reasons that being part of JLabs and having our own lab. So our computational findings are all validated in the lab. So people are like, oh, how do you know if this predictive analytics actually work? It's just bioinformatics. And you're like, well, look, you know, here's here's the IHC, here's the experimental validation, here's the mouse models, here's all those things that a team, my team of biologists get to work and validate all our predictions in the lab. So I think that has made it easier because then when we're going to pharma and our partners, we don't showcase the platform. We don't tell them how our platform works. In reality, we show them how we identify targets that are very specific for a disease population, the prevalence, how these targets are novel and how we can target them and develop therapeutics together. Maria, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how the biotech industry still is lagging on its leadership of women. And we know we've seen a few places like California now requiring all public companies to have at least one woman in their boards and trying to, I guess, bring us closer towards this gender parity. But is this legislation enough? What else do we need? I guess my question is, how do we bring more female voices to this table? Okay, I think you have to have accountability. Without that, I don't think that we can make any progress. So from getting the boards and in venture, having the limited partners uh, have accountability, right? For not having women it will, I think, make it more progressive. So I think, for instance, in VC firms, if, you know, VC firms will adopt a gender parity policies, they will, in order to attract capital, the firm will be more likely to seek out portfolio companies that have the similar values because they've demonstrated the commitment to gender parity. So at the end of the day, the more women that will have decision makers at VC firms, at pharma boards, and a kind of like a cross, it's going to have more gender parity in biotech as a whole. But if there's no accountability, then we're not going to go anywhere, right? So it has to come from the top and it has to come from the bottom. So it kind of, if we do that together, I think that will make a big difference. But legislation is definitely not enough. I think wealth, power, and accountability in these Fortune 500 companies and in limited partners and VC firms that run the world of biotech, it's the only way we can move the needle. Right. Yeah. I feel like you're saying that we should think about these values as almost prerequisites when we think about who we want to choose to partner with, right? Correct. Yeah, I agree. We also wanted to ask you about, in addition to being a CEO, we know that you're also a mother. And I Mm -hmm. wanted to ask you a little bit about this experience of balancing these two incredible and demanding roles and how do they contribute to your vision of leadership? I think uh, being a mom had made me a better CEO. I think that's the first thing. The second thing, it, it allows you to see what you're doing and not wasting time. Like if I'm going to be doing this and not spending time with my family, it better be a good reason to do so because, you know, life's too short to be just going out in circles and just doing things that are not meaningful. And your child is super important. So you, you learn how to prioritize, you learn how to deal with tantrums, 
right? You have to learn how to be three steps ahead of the game so you can figure out how to scale, how to lead, how to be better at, at kind of dealing with low and high situations under pressure. So whatever you need to do, just work at it. And if you can, just find the best people around you to help you do that. And for motherhood, that's the same thing. It takes a village. Do you have any advice that you could offer to those listening that are thinking to become scientist entrepreneurs? Any failures or lessons that you've learned along the way? One of the major lessons I've learned in my career is to bring great people that have the skill sets that you do not have as early as possible. You need to learn to accept your failures and your gaps so you can kind of form the necessary team around you to overcome those obstacles. The faster and the easier you accept that you're not good at something, the easier it's going to help you bring those people on board. And I think this is one of the things that you may not want to make the decision at certain stage of a company. So timing is very critical. So if you know that you're not good at something, just bring in somebody to help you do that. And if, if you are trying your best, but you can just accept it and do what's, what you do best. The only one that will succeed is the company moving forward. I have a really quick follow-up question. Can you talk yeah. about how you bring diversity in, in your own team at Envisagenics? That's a, a great question. We don't bring diversity. We are diverse. So then when we're hiring people, we just hire the best team that we can. doesn't matter color, gender, religion, nationality. We just want the best team possible. And because we are very diverse and we're like 75% female, everybody's from somewhere in different nationalities. Most of our applicants end up being women. And sometimes I think we ask them one of the reasons, why do you apply to Investigenics? They're like, well, you know, you have CEO, female, female-led company, and we like that we feel comfortable applying. And I love that. First, I should tell all the females, like, you should apply no matter what, if it's female or male. But because we're a diverse team, we got a diverse applicant pool. So we never have an issue of diversity and inclusion. We're very proud of that. And I mean, as you can see, you have a, you know, Latina female-led biotech in New York City. So we're just trying to do the best science we're trained to do. And at the end of the day, it's always for the patient. We want to try to develop the therapeutics for them because they're in huge need. And we have to accelerate it, make it faster, better, so they can enjoy time with their own families. Absolutely. Maria, I think these were all the questions that we had for you. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, well, thank you for having me. And I'm always here uh, for this question and for the network and to kind of help everybody out there with a PhD or interested in entrepreneurship to see that they also can do it if they yeah. want to. It's not easy, but it's definitely a lot of fun and you just get it done and you'll be happy for it. Thank you all for listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare, on Twitter at ThiaHC, and on our website at ThiaHC.org for more content and to join our vibrant community of young professionals, entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders in healthcare. Special thanks to our amazing producer, Sarah Wetzler, and audio editors, Ellie Park, Asim Jain, Nikita Gupta, and Katie Donahue. If you're enjoying our content, please consider supporting Thea by visiting our website, thiahc.org, to donate.